just so you are aware, we have uh, maybe a helpful tool for you this morning on the table over here. If you'd like to get this before we start, it's a little outline of the uh, text we're going to be covering today, maybe be helpful in taking notes. Um, the reason I want you to have that is I was first addressed that, that it needed to be a, a tool that we could use. Also, um, this is a very practical lesson today that I don't want you to forget. I want you to see the uh, practical implications of the doctrine that's being taught in First Peter this morning, and this will help you in that process, I believe, as you take this home and ponder some of the notes that you take or read through the text. So before I uh, begin, let's go ahead and pray, because we obviously need God's direction and the Holy Spirit's power to not just articulate truth, but to hear truth. So Father, God, we come to you um, as weak, as weary, as Christ-reliant Christians. We come to you through the merits of Jesus, because it was through his work that we now gain access to your presence. It is the work that Christ accomplished in his life and in his atoning death and in the resurrection that grants us this sacred fellowship this morning with the saints. And in this fellowship, Lord, we are to develop, I know, according to Peter, a kind of relationship that would truly magnify the glory of Jesus the attributes and the attitudes of Jesus. And that is our desire this morning as we study through 1 Peter 3. God, we again rely totally upon you to open our ears, open our eyes, and apply this truth to our feet. And we come before you humbly, God, and thankful for the work of Christ and ask you to do this in his name. Amen. If you would, just please open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter 3. Um, actually, we're, we're going to be looking at one verse today, but I will address a few things to introduce this. Uh, Peter's going to speak to us very practically this morning, and in doing so, he is speaking to us very pastorally this morning, and I don't want you to see that today as we go through this text. This text is being applied to us. God is speaking to sovereign grace this morning. He is speaking to you individually, but also corporately as a part of the body of Christ here in this gathered church today. And it's not an accident that we're in this text and you're here today. God has ordained your very footsteps, the very decisions you made to get up this morning. God was in charge of that. So we give thanks for you to be being here and give him praise for that. In First in Peter, what we've been covering in the first two chapters or three chapters actually now, but especially in two and three, we've been learning that at the end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3, that all human relationships, interactions are important to God. Peter tells us in chapter 2 that our relationships to Gentiles, to governments, to employers, and to our spouses in chapter 3 are important to God because in every single human relationship that Christians come in contact with, those relationships can be turned in, into a, in such, a, in such a beautiful way to reflect the glory of Jesus in the world that we should see them as an opportunity to magnify Christ. Every opportunity is given to us in every relationship, especially when those relationships are difficult. And that's what he's already covered. All these difficult relationships require us looking to Jesus for our strength and reflecting Jesus in our response. But there's one relationship, one human relationship that actually transcends all of these other relationships that we've already addressed. And that relationship is one that is bound 
together for eternity. Yet, in the mystery of God, it is built on earth. It is built here, built up here on earth. This one relationship is primary in the mind of Jesus Christ when he comes into the world. It's the relationship that he has with his people, the church, and their relationship with one another now on earth and throughout eternity. Look at 1 Peter 2.5 to see that it is bound together for eternity, but it is built up here on earth. In 2.5, Peter tells us, you also, and he's speaking to you Christians, you believers, you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. You're, you're living stones that are interlocked together into a beautiful edifice that is created for a reason. It is to be a holy, set-apart priesthood that's offering up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is the relationship God has built here on the earth. And, and I often wonder about why we are here on the earth. Why not swept into heaven when we're saved? This tells us why. We're here to be an edifice that brings God glory because we reflect the beauty of Christ to the world. And the way in which we live, living stones, it means we're abiding together, built together to reflect Christ's work in an outward manner. That's what he's getting at. You see, every Christian is to be a witness for Christ. In the way you interact in every relationship and in how you evangelize the world, you are being a witness of the work that he's done inside of you and it shows up outwardly in the way you relate to one another. Go back to 1 Peter 3. And I want to read the text this morning. We're going to read from verses 1 to 8, focusing on 8. Because in this, we, we see that Christ's work in every relationship is, is displayed in the most intimate ways through a husband and wife, but then ultimately in the relationship between one another and the church. Again, that eternal relationship. Because if you read the first two, the, the husband-wife relationship, you could even have people who are married to unbelievers, and they do not have the kind of intimacy and relationship that we have as believers with one another. It is a supernatural relationship we have through God, through Christ's work that needs to be reflected in the way we live with one another. Look what it says in one. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the world, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So he's talking about, let the, he's going to talk about the inward beauty of the wife that Christ has transformed. Let that come out to your life in such a way your husbands will see the glory of Jesus. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not merely be merely external braiding of the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God, a spirit that reflects Jesus. And then verse 5 says, For in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Then he addresses husbands. They're to reflect the glory of Christ in their life in the relationship to their wife. He says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker. More fragile is what he means, since she is a woman. And show her honor by treating her as a precious vessel of God. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. To sum up, all of you, now he's going to address us all. It was how we deal with Gentiles individually, how we deal with governments, how we deal with officials, how we deal with employers, employees, how we deal with wives and husbands. Now he says, 
This is, this is going to connect all this together. I'm going to put all these teachings together as Christians. You need to do this. To sum up, all of you Christians, corporately, he's talking about, as a body of believers, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. This is the word of God to us today. Peter, in verse 8, sums up his teachings that he has just gave us through the first part of this chapter and and the last of chapter 2 by commanding Christians to do something here. He's actually commanding you to be something here. He's commanding you to be a reflection of Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's commanding Christians to reflect Christ-like attitudes in the family of God, the most precious relationship we have on earth that will transcend this planet and take us into glory. We'll be there forever with one another walked arm in arm before the throne of God, worshiping as the people of God. In, in 3.8, Peter commands, uh, this is basically your outline that you have before you, Peter commands Christians to reflect five Christ-like attitudes in the family of God, in our fellowship in the family of God. And what I want you to understand is this. These attitudes, these attitudes are to be cultivated in corporate worship, corporate fellowship. The church and the corporate gathering of the local church is extremely important to Jesus. It's here that he has established leaders and teachers to wash you in the word and to guide you in the truth so that you could cultivate these kinds of attitudes in your heart. But it doesn't end here. This is where it begins. These attitudes go beyond the Sunday meeting. They go on beyond that and they affect us in our fellowship as Christians individually. And what I, what I think is really important here is what I want you to see is these, these attitudes that we are to exhibit would be really superficial if we showed up at church on Sunday and said, I'm going to be harmonious, I'm going to be sympathetic, and I'm going to be kind-hearted and brotherly and humble. And then you, you don't ever really deal with each other practically on a day-to-day basis throughout the week. It, it, if, if you don't see it as this is God's encompassing desire for all of our friendships and relationships to center around Christ and to be growing together outside of the Sunday gathering, you missed the point. The church here was about to go through suffering. Peter's teaching them in the congregation how to deal with it by being like this on the inside. It will affect them outwardly in their behavior toward one another. So they would be prepared when suffering and distress comes. There will not be divisions. They'll actually be already grounded together in love, seeking the best for one another in a practical way, not just on Sunday for an hour and a half, but daily seeking out one another. This is the the dilemma of the modern church era. Mega churches have hurt us in this way, many ways. We have lost sight of the continuity of fellowship. And we think that church is something that we do on Sunday morning. You are the church. You don't do church. You are the body and the family of God, the body of Christ, the family of God. And you're called not to just gather on Sunday, rub elbows for a little bit and go home. You're called to be united as living stones, interacting with one another as a local church. And it's to that interaction that the world will see a reflection of Jesus. Because we will go through suffering together. There's been some of you here in this church already that has went through suffering since we've established, since God has established the church. And being a part of that suffering and watching God work in his sovereign grace through that suffering has encouraged all of us here. That's Peter's desire here. God's command here is for us to reflect this kind of picture of Christ-likeness in such a way that the world will see that we actually believe the gospel. 
Peter tells us that our family fellowship should be five things here. It should be filled with five things. It should be reflecting these five things. It should be, number one, harmonious. Number two, sympathetic. Number three, brotherly. It should be kind-hearted. Number four. And fifthly, it should be humble. Look at verse 8 with me again. To sum up, all of you Christians, be harmonious. Again, he's telling them to do something that is internal. You should exist as, that's what he means. You be, be this way. Don't, it doesn't say act this way. He says be this way. Be harmonious. Be sympathetic. Be brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Verse 8, we're commanded to, number one, be harmonious in our attitude. And what he's getting at here, if you understand it in the context of the book, he says, be harmonious as you grow together doctrinally in the word as a local church. If you want to see harmony, which means unity or like mindedness, united in thought and purpose, you must first be united in doctrine. You must be growing together in the truth. It's through the truth that there is There's a like-minded understanding of the difficulties we face together as a church. But if you don't have doctrinal unity, you'll never have unity, period. You must strive for this harmonious attitude. An attitude that says, I'm going to seek the truth at all costs so that I will have a like-minded perspective of the needs of others in the church in my ministry to them. Look how... On your paper you have before you, look at the bottom there, what Thomas Watson, the Puritan, had to say about growing doctrinally together and growing together in the church. He says, walk with them that are holy. And his idea is those that are set apart. He that walketh with the wise shall be wise. Be among the spices and you will smell of them. Association begets assimilation. Nothing has a greater power and energy to affect holiness than the communion of the saints. And notice in that word communion, there's the word union. There is no union apart from being united in doctrine on the doctrine of salvation. That it was God before the foundation of the world that chose to bestow love upon sinners. And to do that, he would send his son into the world to live the righteous life they could never live, to die the death that we deserved and be raised on the third day to declare that his sacrifice was accepted. And that, that doctrine affects the way we live the rest of our lives. That unites us from the beginning. And from there, our harmony and our unity will grow because it's based on doctrinal purity. Jesus himself taught that doctrine was Essential for unity. Look at John 17. We want to base everything that we see in these five characteristics, these five attitudes, base these things on what Jesus did because we are to reflect Jesus. Jesus was ultimately focused on harmony in his ministry when he came into the world. He came to teach and be an example. He came to atone and to explain doctrine. He taught that doctrine was essential to bring about unity or harmony in the church. In John 17, 17, look what it says. Sanctify, and that word sanctify simply means set them apart. Sanctify my children. He's talking about in reference to his disciples, to those who would be his disciples in the future. Those who are elect of God, chosen by God's sovereign mercy and grace. Sanctify them in the truth. And then he tells us how to do that. Your word is 
truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also or I also sent them into the world for their sakes. I set myself apart. See that to be a living sacrifice. I set myself apart for their sake that they themselves may also be set apart in the truth. Jesus is really concerned about being in union and in harmony with God's will, with God's word, with God's direction. He says in verse 20, I don't I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for also for those who believe in me through their word. That would be you today if you're a Christian. He's praying for you that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may all also they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. It's not a false ecumenicism here. It's not a false unity here that says, hey, you know, you say Jesus, I say Jesus. We must all be brothers in Christ. No, he says, I want them to know the truth about why I came into the world, the truth about who I am, because that will separate them from the world and unite them together in doctrine. Then the world will know why I came, because the church will proclaim it accurately. That will bring harmony into the church. Go back to Peter. But you need to understand that Peter is, this is Peter's desire. When I say this is Peter's desire that we would be harmonious in our attitude as we grow together doctrinally, I base that out of the fact that that's what he's been trying to teach us from the very beginning. He's been telling us from the very beginning that we need to be united in the same purposes based on the doctrines that he just gave us the first two chapters. That's why he spent so much time there. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Peter a special sent one of Jesus Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside in, as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So he, he, he delves off into doctrine at the very first two verses. He talks about God's electing choice of you. And he tells us that it's also the doctrine of God's sanctifying work through the Holy Spirit that calls you. To obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled, atoned for by the blood of Jesus. So he's, he starts out with doctrine at the very beginning. Saying, this is what's going to unite you that are scattered, that are scared, that are afraid because you're not in your homeland anymore. Or maybe you're not in protection of, or fellowship with other Christians around you. And so you feel alone. But just know this, you're not alone. God chose you. God planted you. God put you there. And it's that doctrine that brought them harmony when suffering came because they thought, well, is this out of God's hand? No. God put us here. God's protecting us. That's what it says on further down in verse 5 there. It says, we are the ones who are protected by the power of God, the dunamis of God, the dynamite of God, the, the all protective power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then look, in chapter, look at verse 18. He tells us more doctrine that will actually unite us in our understanding and unite us in our practice and the way we deal with one another in the church. You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life you inherited from your forefathers, but with, you were redeemed with precious blood as of the lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. This doctrine of the atonement here that he's talking about. It's what makes us all realize we're on level ground. This is bringing harmony to the church because no one comes into the church thinking, I have achieved more than someone else here. No, we've, none of us have achieved anything but our own destruction apart from grace. We come into the church 
And the only requirement to be in the church is that you first and foremost must know that you are a sinner who deserve God's wrath. And yet Jesus has done something to atone for that. He has taken your place and received the wrath in your place. And that produces a transformation in the way you live with one another in the church. There's no big eyes and little U's. It's we are seeking the unity and the concern of one another in humility. The idea here in the word harmonious, the, the word harmonious actually means like-mindedness. It's two Greek words that are connected, like-mindedness. And like-mindedness, and there's another word in this text that has a, two Greek words tied together, and it's called humility. And when you have doctrinal purity, you will have great like-mindedness and low-mindedness in humility. Low-mindedness is what humility means, but it will be produced when you have a like-mindedness of what God has done to redeem you and why you need to be saved. The doctrine that we see in the first two chapters of this book deal with the doctrine of God's sovereign mercy towards sinners. And and so if, if God has been merciful toward us, then that should transform the way we act toward others. That causes us to be sympathetic. That's the next thing you see in chapter 3, verse 8. We are commanded to, number two, be sympathetic. Now, I think what he's getting at here, again, he's talking to a local church. He's saying, be sympathetic as you serve one another as a church family. Have sympathy in your service. Have sympathy in your local gatherings. Because remember, he's dealing with a church that's going to go through suffering. And so he's saying, be sympathetic. And, and he wants us to be sympathetic in the way that we care for one another. We know that Jesus himself was sympathetic, was he not? Jesus was our sympathetic high priest. Jesus became flesh to sympathize and save us and even serve us. That's a, that's a great picture of sympathy. That's a great picture that we are to reflect in our love for one another in the local church. Look at Hebrews 4 to see what Christ did. How he expressed sympathy and how we should reflect this in some degree in the way we relate to one another in the church. In Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Don't don't pass by that quickly. The writer of Hebrews is saying you have a high priest unlike any high priest you have ever seen. It's not just a good man. It is the God man. Jesus, the Son of God, is your intercessor. He is your sympathetic priest. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest like others, like men, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, But we have one, he says, one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet one who is without any sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what sympathy does. Sympathy allows you to look at the needs of others and be able to seek out how to serve them. So they can come to you when they are in need and they need mercy and they see that you actually sympathize with them, that you're willing to serve them and care for them. Then you are reflecting what Christ has done here in his incarnating work of love and sympathy here in Hebrews 4. He teaches us what sympathy looks like practically. Sympathy is this. It's seeking to feel what others feel. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came and became a, a babe in a manger, became a perfect 
baby, grew up to be a perfect teenager, a perfect man, so that he could sympathize with us at every point and yet overcome sin for us. He knows how we feel. He knows the struggles that we face in life. He knows what temptation looks like. He knows the result of sin in the world. And we are to seek out how to be sensitive and and understand the needs of others around us and feel what they feel so we can respond to them practically and actively and affectionately. Because these people around you today, folks, are your brothers and sisters for eternity. If you cannot show sympathy in this local church by being sensitive and trying to put yourself into the other person's relationship and the other person's life and care about their needs, then how do you expect to rejoice with them in heaven for eternity? We need to be looking at one another not as individuals in this church, but as part of the living stones joined together. And when you hurt, I should hurt. When you struggle, I should struggle with you. When you rejoice, I should rejoice. But I can't do that unless there's affection, unless there's intimacy in our relationship. That's what Peter goes on to talk about in 3.8. If you look back in 1 Peter 3.8, we're commanded to be something else. We're commanded to be brotherly. Brotherly in our affection for one another in God's family. That's what he's getting at. Brotherly in our affections. Hebrews, look at Hebrews while we're there, if you're still there. Hebrews 2, 10. Jesus displayed a brotherly affection for us. And this is not the word agape. This is not agape love. This is phileo. It's talking about brotherly affection, brotherly concern, brotherly friendship, if you want to put it that way. Look at 2.10. Here's what Jesus did to relate to us. He showed us a brotherly affection. He is not ashamed of us. Therefore, we should not be ashamed of those who serve here with us either. We should be seeking them as our closest friends, seeking to invest our life and our time in those around us and pray that God will bring more people in so we can do that with them as well. 2.10 says, It was fitting for him, that's Jesus, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, the Creator God, is what he's talking about, Jesus is God. He made all things, all things were made for Him and through Him. In, in, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their faith, author of their salvation, through sufferings. God would, would perfect the author of our salvation by bringing Him to die in our place, to take our place, substitute His life for us, for, he, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified or set apart are all from one Father. God is our Father because Jesus came to suffer and bring us adoption. He came to take our place, become our substitution on the cross, substitution in life, so that we could now be adopted and grafted in by God's grace, accepted through the work of Jesus. For which reason, he says, he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He showed us an affection as brothers by coming into this world to take our place to set us free. He sacrificed himself for us to render the power of death powerless. 
He showed us a special affection. He, he did that by being incarnate. He became our brother in that sense. He loved us with a brotherly love. Sometimes we think about Jesus being the God-man, and we think about Him being the Savior and the Lord, and that's all appropriate, and we should. But also remember the fact is that He came to show us a deep, abiding friendship. What it looks like to be a true friend of God is to be one who's been reconciled by His blood, atoned for by the sacrifice that He provided in His own life by becoming a man for us. And so when you think about that, I think somehow if we can transition that into what we're being commanded in Peter is to be brotherly in our affections toward one another in the church, we need to think about how we can incarnate a brotherly love to those around us. And just think about that. Do you, do you really long for brotherly love? Do you, do you long for fellowship, not with some guy you knew a long time ago or some lady you knew a long time ago from another church? Not that that's wrong. That's good, too. But do you desire brotherly affection in the local church with the people sitting next to you? Do you desire not just friendship, but part of, listen, part about being brothers. I had a great big brother. Part about being brothers is my brother liked to correct me. And brothers do that. Sometimes the correction might not have been what I wanted to hear at the time, but it was necessary. It was good, and I accepted it, and I was thankful for it. But part of being brotherly is also being willing to be friendly in the sense of holding each other to a certain kind of accountability. Going to one another, correcting one another, counseling one another. And that requires you investing time in one another. The church is not a social gathering. It is a family. It is tied together with bonds that are are stronger than anything in this world. It is tied together with the blood of Jesus. And we should be seeking that kind of friendship and developing those kinds of friendships that would honor Jesus by correcting and loving and befriending those in this local church that God has placed us together with here at Sovereign Grace. Again, you're not here by any kind of accident. Whatever reason you even thought you came here, the decision you thought you made, God was ordaining even your thoughts, even the desires of your heart. Here's a a little test to, to see if you... I know you all desire this. I know you all desire brotherly love and, and to express this attitude of brotherly love, but test yourself and see if you reflect brotherly love in our church. Here's, here's a test. Here's a question. Do you know anything about the inner struggle or joys of the person sitting next to you this morning? Do you know anything about their struggles? Do you know anything about their joys? Do you know anything about their prayer needs, their their desires of their heart, their goals, what they, what they want to do, how they want to serve Jesus. Do you know anything about that this morning? If you don't, you're being commanded by God to pursue that. It is God's grace to you that you have a brother or sister next to you that are willing to befriend you, be accountable to you, serve with you in the church because we're all part of one family, the family of God. We've been adopted by His grace brought into this family through Christ's sacrifice. And we need to be thankful for that in the way we show affections for one another in the church. We need to pursue those relationships. Peter tells us that it's through God's adoption. I mean, that's basically what we see throughout chapter 2 because he paid the price for us through Christ's own blood. He, He purchased us out. He set us apart for his glory by calling us to salvation 
so that we would be a family, that we'd be a living example, the people of God that reflect the work of Christ in our relationships. And part of that relationship is how we relate brotherly and we do so in a kind way, in a kind-hearted way. Now, this, is, this one's a little harder. Each one of these, if I, if I read through these, I think they get harder and harder and harder. I think there's a progression here because of our indwelling sin. They seem harder. But each one takes this kind of command to reflect Jesus' attitudes to the next level. It's one thing to, to be concerned about the, the needs of, of those around you, but it's another thing to be actually kind-hearted. That's what the fourth thing he commands here. We're commanded to be, in 1 Peter 3, 8, kind-hearted. Kind-heartedness is a, is a spiritual grace. It is something that can be cultivated as a Christian. Uh, none of us own kind-heartedness until we're born again. You may, you may show a little bit of kindness every once in a while as an unsaved person, but no one truly understands what it means to be kind-hearted until God has broken you over your own sins and showed you how that God himself was concerned about you and sensitive to the, your needs. Kind, we're called to be kind-hearted in our sensitivity to the needs around us in our church family. And this word kind-hearted simply means this, sensitivity to your inward feelings. Now, that's a, that's a nice way of saying it. I'll tell, I'll tell you guys what it really means. Sensitivity to your bowels. That's what it means. Sensitivity to your innards. When something upsets you, something is frightening to you, where do you feel that? In your gut. This word actually has to do with the, the, ga- the gut, the bowels. There's a, there's a big, long Greek word for it, which I can't pronounce, won't even try, but it has a phrase in it that has the word splee in it. And if, actually, if you look it up, it's where we derive the word spleen from. So I call this kind-heartedness the spleenology of sensitivity. It's, it's our spleenology. We are to have a heart that is so sensitive to the needs of a, our brothers and sisters in the, in the church that it causes our guts to hurt when they hurt. We actually will weep because someone else is hurting, whether we're there with them or not. We'll rejoice at the good news of our brothers, even if we're not there with them and we hear that. He's telling us to be as sensitive as Jesus is to the needs around him. That's what he's calling us to do. Jesus' sensitivity was obvious in his ministry. It's obvious now. He's still interceding for us. It wasn't just a one-time sensitivity, a one-time kind-heartedness. He is kind-hearted and sensitive inwardly toward our needs now, even in heaven. It's through Jesus' teaching and through Jesus' example we can learn to be sensitive, kind-hearted toward those around us. Listen, again, you can come here, you can enjoy hearing sermons or enjoy singing songs or enjoy some communion afterwards talking, but if you're not really cultivating a heart of Christ, a heart that's sensitive to the needs around us, and you're not aware of the needs around you, you're really missing this command that Peter's calling you to do so that you would reflect Jesus to the world. Look at how Jesus displayed kind-heartedness in Matthew 9. Matthew 9.35. Now, what we, what we have to be very careful of here, when we, we talk about, look at Jesus' example of kind-heartedness. 
it's not just that Jesus exists for an example, okay? None of us can display any kind of kind-hearted attitude apart from Jesus' work, His atonement, His sacrifice. It's, it's an imputed kindness that we have because of Christ. We don't just simply say, I'll be kind by just following the things He's, he's called me to do here. No, I want to, I want to reflect the thankful heart that I have for his sensitivity to me in my behavior because he has saved me by his sensitivity. Look what it says in Matthew nine thirty five through 38. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's preaching the gospel. And healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion. That's the word kind-heartedness for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus had compassion on this crowd. They were distressed. They were dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And not everyone there was elect. He shows kind-heartedness to everyone in this crowd. And then that kind-hearted compassion that he has actually leads him to intercession. He intercedes. He tells his disciples, You beseech the Lord of the harvest on behalf of those who are distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And his intercession led to the call to evangelization. And his evangelization led to the salvation of many sinners that also led to your salvation. One of the sinners that was saved through the evangelization of the disciples of Christ was the salvation of a man named Saul who became Paul who wrote the majority of the New Testament that now each one of us hold dear to our hearts and probably was used by God to bring us to repentance and faith in Jesus. It's through Jesus' kind-heartedness, His compassion that you were saved. Aren't you glad that Jesus was sensitive to the needs that were around Him that day? Aren't you glad He's sensitive to your needs right now as you go through suffering? Peter is commanding us to develop that ability to feel tenderness like Jesus. And I think the way we do that is we reflect on Jesus' kindness toward us. I think if if you're sensitive to the fact that you are such a wretched sinner that it required God's wrath to be poured out on His Son to atone for your sins, and Jesus died a wretched death, an ignoble death, Because God himself loved you and was sensitive to your inability to save yourself. When you're sensitive to God's love for you, you will be tenderhearted toward the needs of those around you. You will be sensitive in your heart, in your bowels, in your internal organs. When someone hurts, you will seek to be Christ to them. You will seek to comfort them, to guide them, and maybe even to lead them to Jesus if they're not believers. So... He's telling us you need to have a kind heart, a heart that is sensitive. The opposite of that would be a hard heart. He's asking us to examine our hearts. Are our hearts, is your heart sensitive to the needs of others in this church? Do you know the needs 
the personal needs, the spiritual struggles of those in the church. Now listen, I'm not trying to, this is no condemnation on you. I'm just simply pointing out, this is God's command that we need to pursue these things. He'll talk about that in verse 9 of chapter 3 later. He'll talk about pursuing, and in chapters 10, or verses 10 and 11 and 12, he'll talk about pursuing peace. Hunting it down is what he's saying. And that's the same idea here. We're to hunt down the needs around us in the church because you're our brothers. You've been saved by the blood of Christ with us, adopted into the family of God. And we need to be involved in the lives of others in the church. So ask yourself, are you involved in one another's life? Or are you focused on yourself when you come? Hey, we all focus on ourselves. That's called sin. We're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. We're to serve others the way Christ served us, sacrificially, willingly, obediently, from the heart. Yet we fall short, don't we? And when you fall short, aren't you glad that Jesus is sensitive to your need? And he rebukes you, and he picks you up, and he starts you back on the path that he has called you to. He has not forsaken you. He's not abandoned you. He is sensitive to you. It's that kind-heartedness that drives us to be kind-hearted toward others in the church. It's Jesus' kind-heartedness, kind-heartedness that should humble us in our service to one another. That's the fifth thing we see, 1 Peter 3.8. It's the last command we see here. We're commanded to be humble in spirit. Humble in spirit, in our attitude as we serve one another in the body of Christ. The word again, humility, means simply this, low-mindedness. It means a mind not rising far above the ground. In other words, a contrite person. A person with their face to the ground who feels unworthy to look up. Jesus actually exemplified that, which is amazing to me. Jesus is who we are to reflect when we are being called to humility. Jesus humbled himself by becoming a slave to save and build the church. There is no higher calling than to be called to humility. The God-man humbled himself and became flesh out of a great love and a desire to build a church that would reflect his glory throughout the earth and into eternity. He expressed humility. Can you, can you even fathom the incarnation of Jesus? You can't, really. I tried to explain Jesus becoming a man to my boys when they were little. I said, it's kind of like this, guys. It's kind of like, you see that ant down there? You see that little ant hill that he crawls into? Just imagine yourself becoming like an ant and crawling down into that hole and living like an ant. And I said, that's not even close, though, guys. Because you know what's different between that ant and, and us? That ant is not a sinner. And God, the Son, came into the world to live among sinners. To live a life of perfection that we could never live because we are defiled by our sin inwardly and even externally. We are totally consumed by those sins. And yet Jesus came and dwelt with us out of compassion and kindness, humbly serving a bunch of wretched sinners who cursed Him to His face on the cross as He was atoning for their sins. And listen, if you don't see yourself with that crowd at the cross, you miss the gospel. 
Because you were cursing Him too before He saved you. Jesus humbled Himself by becoming a servant. And we should serve others the way Christ did. Look what Philippians 2 says. Philippians 2.1 Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, that's almost all the same kind of attributes or attitudes that Peter is calling for. Fellowship, affection, compassion. He says, if there is any of this based on what Jesus has done, make my joy complete, Paul says, by being of the same mind. There's the same harmonious mind. Maintaining the same love. United in harmony, in spirit, intent on one purpose. And here's what it is. Do nothing. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, lowliness of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do to others what you want done to you. Regard the person beside you, your spouse, your children, the person in the pew. Regard them in a way that you would be concerned about their needs above yourself. More important than yourself, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, what's interesting is when Paul is writing this, he's doing exactly what he's calling us to do. He's suffering for the gospel's sake. He is giving his life away. He is considering others as more important than himself. And verse 5 tells us why he did that. He says, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does it say? Jesus emptied or laid aside his privileges, taking the form of a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself. He laid low his own esteem of his authority and power so that he would become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If anyone deserved to not go to the cross, it was obviously Jesus. But out of great humility and love for the Father's will, And for the the children that God would adopt, Jesus himself became a slave to the point of death on a cross. Now, when you read Philippians 2, what you're you're reading is a a doctrinal statement. A doctrine. A a doctrine that would actually promote something. And that's what I want you to understand in Peter, and we read Peter as well. Doctrine, doctrine, proper theology, will promote humility. Humility. It'll promote transformation practically in our lives. Nothing promotes humility like a a proper view of God's grace. God's saving mercy. Studying the, the love of Jesus that's exemplified here should lay low any proud thoughts in your heart. You realize Jesus did this because of my offenses. I come before God as a child now because Jesus saw I was a wretch. And needed to be atoned for. I have nothing to boast in but the cross of Christ. That is my boast. 
that, that lays low any proud thoughts that I have, that lays low any thoughts that I'm better or superior in my spiritual walk than someone else in this church who hasn't arrived theologically as far as me. Listen, you can grow in your theology, and we need to. We need to grow in our doctrine. We need to grow in the depths of theology. But until you understand humility, if you have all the theology in the world, you are nothing but a noisy gong. You have knowledge, but you're not effectual. Jesus had knowledge and humility, and his work was effectual. And that's what we're called to be, effectual in our humility toward one another, our lowliness of mind. And and by the way, if you study the first two chapters of Peter and you recognize the sovereign, electing grace of God, you have no room to boast in your salvation. You are saved solely on the basis of God's free choice. You're not saved based on any religious works you've done. You're not saved based on any kind of good deeds you could do. You're not saved by your own righteousness. You're not saved by your own choice. You're saved by God's grace, His undeserved favor that cost Jesus everything. It was at Jesus' expense that you have been purchased by God. There's no no boasting in that. That's supposed to promote humility in our mind and our attitude in the church. If you look how that humility will show itself, look at 1 Corinthians 12. That's how it shows itself in the church. The Apostle Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 12, basically this, that a a humble person, a humble person may not be the most visible person in the church, but he is one of the most essential people in the church. Humility, especially packed with proper theology, is, is essential to our evangelization, to our ministry, to our cooperation and our fellowship. Because the people who you don't see, maybe publicly, are the people who are causing the church to move forward powerfully in many ways. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of one body, or of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, immersed into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the, if, the, if the foot is humble, I'm not really this important. It's still a part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, a really important visual part, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eyeball, right? That's the idea here. Where would the hearing be? Maybe it'll see really good, but you can't hear. If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. Isn't that astounding to you? You are placed into the body of Christ. The living God has picked you out, put you there, and even put you in a local church as he desired. It means each one of you have a role to play in the church, in the body. Each one of you are necessary, though you may feel like you're just an ear or just a nose or just a foot. You're nonetheless a part of the body and essential. Because I tell you this, without a toe, it's hard to run. Without an eye, it's hard to see where you're going. 
And we need each and every part of the body so that we can move forward for the glory of God and reflect the, the glory of Jesus. You know, it's interesting. I think about the humble people that I know. I have a privilege that maybe some of you don't because I, I, I get to see a lot of things going on in this local church that maybe you don't see. And there's a tremendous amount of humility of service in the saints in this church that go on behind the scenes causing us to go forward each week. And, and I recognize it. I see it. I give God praise for it. And other people who do it would be very uncomfortable if I praised them for it. But I can tell you how, how humility of mind, lowliness of mind is effectual in our church. It's, it's usually made evident because I know people are praying for me privately. Praying for you privately. That's equipping you and helping you when you go through struggles and difficulties. They're petitioning God on your behalf without seeking any attention. They're serving the church through small things from cleaning, from building, from coming in and, and picking things up when they're necessary. There's humility sometimes seen in the fact that they make private visits to people that I can't go see. And they don't come to me and say, guess what, guess what? I went and saw so-and-so. Do I get a credit? They seek to do these things that would reflect Jesus because that's their desire, because they know that God has done such a great thing to save them. But they seek to serve others in humility without recognition. They don't come to me and say, hey, I just did this great thing. Do I get praise? Well, if you do, that's the only praise you're going to get because your reward is gone. I, I, I want humility to be cultivated in all of us. Um, one of the worst things you can do for me, probably if I could speak for Nate too, this is a mixed emotion. It's to say that a sermon was encouraging. That's, that's actually good, but it's bad. What you need to say is, God's word through that sermon was encouraging. The word of God was encouraging this morning. That lesson was encouraging this morning because I, I know my own heart. And if pride can sneak in, it will. So give God praise in the ministries that are even visible when you encourage others in those. Because we are prone, sadly, towards sin ourselves. It, it is encouraging to me when I see humility worked out in this way in the church as well. Um, when I see people interacting with one another in conversations, and the person interacting is saying, Tell me about your need. What's going on in your life? How are you? Things okay? What's going on? How can I serve you? And the whole time, the person that's asking those questions is the one who's going through the greatest suffering. But they show great humility and interest in others around them. Not seeking to be looked at, not seeking to be served, but simply wanting to serve because Jesus has served them. That's, that's a great sign of humility, and I see that a lot here. God gets the glory for that. But I think if, if, we, if we know our own hearts and we search our own hearts, we would all be honest and say, even though Peter's commanding us to do something by God here, we all fall short of these commands. If we're honest, we'll confess that we're all often too boastful, not humble. We're often too self-seeking rather than sensitive to others. We're all too unsympathetic and too self-focused again. And, and we have to confess, I, I think apart from... The sovereign grace of our God, the unmerited favor of an all-powerful God, 
The commands that Peter gives here are humanly impossible due to our indwelling sin. So when I, when I, read, when I read verse 8, actually my goal was to do 8 through 12 this morning, and I worked on it yesterday, and, and I recognized my inabilities. God exposed my inabilities, and I wanted to quit. I wanted to give up because of indwelling sin. So when, when you read this and you go, okay, Randy, I'm not, wow, you've really, you know, that's convicted me. I'm not harmonious. I'm not sympathetic like I ought to be or brotherly or kind-hearted or humble in spirit. Should you just give up? No, that's not Peter's point. You look up. You look up to God for grace. You hope in God. You hope in what God has already done. You're hoping what God will do in spite of your inability through his spirit working in you. You have to understand Peter's point. Peter is commanding us to do something that requires supernatural power. Because when we fail to do what Peter's commanded here in reflecting Jesus' attitude in our behavior in our church and our family here, we, what we have to do is we have to turn to God as his children in faith and look to his accomplished work in Christ. That's what changes us outwardly. His work that was transforming our heart inwardly is what causes and motivates us to change outwardly. And Peter is commanding us in such a way that it points away from any kind of self-reliance. And it causes us to look to Christ's work and righteousness to accomplish these things. It's Jesus' perfect obedience to these very commands that actually should promote and motivate a Christ-like attitude in our church. Just think about this. Where you and I fail these five commands, Jesus never failed. We are looking to the imputed righteousness of Jesus to accomplish this already before God and to transform us practically in the world. We're moved to obey these commands, even when we fail at them, because Jesus never failed for us. Jesus became our perfect substitute here. This is Peter's point. Peter's whole point of godly living is it's reliant on the work of Jesus alone. Jesus was always in harmony with God's word and God's people for us. Jesus was always sympathetic toward God's children for us. He expressed brotherly love perfectly to our brothers for us. Jesus was kind-hearted toward those who were hurting in the church for us. Jesus was humble in spirit, serving to build up the body of Christ for us. And it's through this, this continual reflection on what Christ has already accomplished that moves us toward a thankfulness for His substitutionary work in us. And that's what now motivates our transformation and our reflection of His attitudes in all of our relationships. You see, the Bible is not a self-help book. How to have a happy life, how to have a better life. Well, he's going to talk about a good life here in, in verses 9 through 12. But a good life is one that knows that you have died in Christ and you have been raised up. Jesus has pleased the Father for you. And now I am I'm one with God. I am in the family of God. I am, I am now at peace with God. And because of Jesus' perfect work, I am driven to look in faith to God to carry me and make me obedient out of a thankfulness for this new relationship He's placed me in. Again, we don't tell people, 
If you want to be a better Christian, you have to do five steps. No, if you want to be a better Christian, Christ has already done it. He's accomplished it. Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness for us. Out of a thankfulness for his work, we grow in our sanctification. Sanctification comes out of a thankful heart for Christ's redemption. That's what it's for. It's to move us, to show us that we are still sinners. We're still going to fall short. But we look to the work of Jesus who never fell short for us. That's how the gospel transforms our relationship in the church. See, the gospel of Jesus wasn't something that just gets us into the body of Christ. It's what sustains us in our relationships in the body of Christ. It's his work that causes us to pursue peace with others, even when it's difficult. And we're going to see that next week. In verse 9, we're going to see Peter command us to bless not our brothers, but our offenders. But again, we can do that because Jesus did it for us. Jesus blessed us who were his offenders. So let's pray this morning that the Lord Jesus will work in us in such a way that his attitudes and his already accomplished work will be reflected in our fellowship as a church. Father, today we thank you because you have accomplished through Christ, what we could never accomplish on our own. You have created true harmony in doctrine through Christ. You have created true sympathy for others through Christ's sympathy for us. And God, you have created a compassion and a tender heart for those who hurt around us through Christ, who is tender toward us and still cares for us. God, you've created a humble attitude in our hearts Because we recognize why Jesus had to come into this world. We recognize that it is our sin that held him to the cross. We also know, Lord, that it was through that work we will be brought to see your glory. And Lord, we now see a glimpse of it in the church. As we see these attitudes reflected in our love and our concern for one another as the family of God. The greatest relationship and eternal relationship that we have been granted to us by the blood of Christ is now something we want to walk in out of thankfulness for what you have done through the work of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your sacrifice. Teach us to walk in your ways. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you would uh, turn your black binder to page 23 and please stand uh, and join me in one more song, the gospel song.
after refreshments.